everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Mark Bookman back on the show, and we're going to talk about the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. That's kind of a mouthful. Welcome back. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure. Um, so tell us about the Atlantic Center. So the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation it is a mouthful. We, we refer to ourselves as ACRE, generally. Um, and uh, uh, we, we formed as, a, as a, a small nonprofit in 2010. Our slogan uh, well, to this day is trying to put ourselves out of business since 2010. Uh, we're a, a, a nonprofit that tries to help um, any, anyone facing possible execution. So it's, it's largely pretrial cases uh, where the, where the, the, the state or, or, or more often the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania uh, has notified the defense that there is going to be a possible death sentence. Uh, we also do post-conviction work. We do some direct appeals. It's, but it's, it's really largely for anyone facing possible execution. And, and in recent years, we've tried to expand a little bit to, uh, we, we did a lot of work with juvenile lifers and we did, um, and we did, uh, and we still do a lot of, a lot of work out of, out of uh, uh, Pennsylvania for, for, for life, lifers who, who, really uh, um, did not get a fair shake. Uh, and before we go on, I just want to say where people that are interested can go to atlanticcenter.org, which is our website, has a lot of stuff there. And uh, I'll just, you know, just so my development director doesn't kill me, I will mention that we rely on, on small donations and small donors uh, to stay in business. I know the feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so what led you to uh, found the Atlantic Center? So, you know, back uh, uh, 13 years ago, there was a there was a thought that that the time was right to to really kind of expose the death penalty for 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 what it was, which was, in our view, um, a, a, an expensive and drastically expensive uh, failed government program. Um, so, so uh, some some larger foundations got together and and tried to 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 set up sort of a network of of uh, organizations 
that 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 were badly needed in, in the 90s this might be a little bit before some people's time there were there were resource centers that that had been funded uh specifically to 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 um help people facing possible execution and they had been defunded so this was sort of a chance to 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 bring that back and there was pretty clearly a need in Pennsylvania because then and now there is no state funding for indigent defense. And you know what what happens is 67 counties in Pennsylvania are kind of you know fending for themselves, and we we're trying you know as best we can to keep a thumb in the dam to 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 help the people that are that are facing it. So that's that's how we got started, and it's been going you know, like I said, 13 years. And it seems a little strange. I, I, I know you mentioned this uh, last time we talked um, that, you know, a state like Pennsylvania, kind of purple leaning blue, uh, at least at times, um, yeah. you know, would, would not have any state funding for indigent defense. It's, it's shocking. And I think, you know, I think people have a misconception about Pennsylvania. You know, just geographically, we we you know we seem like a northeastern state, but our politics are often, you know, southeast. I guess I could say. So yeah, I think it's I think it, it, you know it's very deceptive that way, and a lot of a lot of states, what, what we would refer to as the death belt states. The Carolinas, uh, uh, Georgia, Mississippi, um, many of them have a more organized uh, state-funded system of capital defense. Pennsylvania has nothing, nothing. So pretty shocking. Um, and, and so is that really why you focused heavily in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia? Well, so Philadelphia is its own story. Um, I mean, you know, Pennsylvania is is uh, uh, unique in in one significant way. So we have a large death row, over a hundred. The numbers kind of fluctuate because it sort of depends on how you do the bookkeeping. Um, someone might stay on death row after getting relief, and because the the Commonwealth might be appealing. So the you know, there, there's different ways of calculating who exactly is on death row at any at any given time, depending on where they are procedurally. But we, we you know, our death row is over 100. Um, and and that's 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 a big number. Um, but we've had hundreds of reversals of death sentences and we haven't executed anyone um, except for three people who gave up their appeals. We haven't executed anyone in 60 years uh, other than those three. So, so you know, while we're, while we're, you know, seeking death regularly, we have 57 open capital cases right now in Pennsylvania. That's a big number. And, uh, and yet we haven't executed anybody in 60 years. So you look at Pennsylvania and say, what in God's name is going on here? And we're, you know, we're spending a ton of money there's nothing to show for it except reversal after reversal. And, and just to, to complete my thought, when you have a system that is reversing cases like that, it, like, you know, like a department store revolving door, that's not fair to anybody. It's not fair to the defendants, but it's also not fair to the victims of crime. 
They have to relive this. They have to come back in, in, into court, uh, you know, 15, 20 years later. It's just not, it's not a system that's working. That's why we're calling it a, a failed government program. And what specifically, and, you know, I, I follow death penalty stuff all over the country. So, you know, it's not necessarily like it works well anywhere, but yeah. it seems like it's worse in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, you know, so while I was talking about Pennsylvania, I didn't get a chance to talk about Philadelphia, my, my hometown, which I have described as like a Petri dish for, for the death penalty. Um, it, you know, Philadelphia is, a, is its own very kind of interesting story. We had, um, self, for lack of a better word, I will call them self-aggrandizing prosecutors for 35 years. I may be doing the math wrong. It may be longer than that. We, I'm going to start with Ed Rendell, who then went on from, from prosecutor. He went on to being mayor and then governor. Um, we then uh, um, went to Ron Castile, who went, who became uh, uh, the uh, uh, chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court from being the Philadelphia district attorney. And then we had Lynn Abraham for about 16 years, who was her own kind of, you know, iconic figure in Philadelphia in, in what I would consider a negative way. Then we had Seth Williams, who, who went to federal prison. And so... We, you know, we, we've got this long list of kind of well-known, very aggressive prosecutors. And then from there, we go to Larry Krasner, who is kind of the first foremost reformer in the, in the country, pretty much. And there's a culture shock there in, in Philadelphia. So we, we are, we're based in Philadelphia. It's where I'm from in, in Philadelphia. But the need is so dramatic. Because for all those years, we had a prosecutor's office that was really kind of a runaway train. I mean, they were hiding evidence. There's prosecutorial misconduct. You, you, you could stack it a mile high. And, uh, and then Krasner comes along. He opens the files. And, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they say. So now you've got, you know, you've got 40 years of injustice trying to get out of the, trying to get out 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 into the sunlight and uh that's philadelphia uh, you know <laughs> so i i'm curious since you're kind of on the ground on this i mean um you know in terms of obviously you know krasner is no longer charging death penalty cases but he's also had a pretty extensive uh you know, conviction integrity in it, and they've exonerated a number of people. So can you talk a, a little bit about what it's been like trying to deal with that kind of DA's office as opposed to, you know, the more traditional type? For 40 years, David, I could barely walk into the, to the district attorney's office. As a, I was a public defender for, for 28 years. And, and so, you know, to say that there was hostility between the two sides would be an understatement, right? And then you've got you've got Krasner. So so you know the, the justice system is not supposed to work like a sporting event, right? The defense tries to win within the law, and the and the prosecutor tries to do justice. Now that's that's not such an easy uh, a distinction, right? It's it's it's. Um, it's understandable 
why prosecutors might get swept up in a certain amount of competition, right? Because they're looking across the aisle and they're seeing defense attorneys who are trying to win because that's their obligation to do within with zealous representation within the bounds of the law. So it takes a special person to, to, to be a good prosecutor, I think. And, uh, and, and, and the atmosphere was just never there. So Krasner comes in and he's trying his best to do justice. And so the culture, you know, there's a culture shock there. I like to think of it as, you know, the, the, the empire strikes back, which is, you know, the, the, the legal establishment looks at Krasner and they're saying, what the heck is going on here? We've had 40 years of aggressive prosecution. Now we, now we have a guy who's coming in. He's talking about cash bail. He's opening files. He doesn't want to seek the death penalty. Um, it's a culture shock in Philadelphia. But working with that office has been, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a pleasure. That doesn't mean we're going to win every time we, we bring something to their office, but at least you're going to get heard. At least you're going to get a fair review, um, which is something that we didn't have for all those years. Now, when we make a phone call, we get a phone call back. You know, we get invited to show them what we have. Um, that's a breath of fresh air, to say the least. And Krasner, of course, you know, uh, a couple of years ago tried to... Uh challenge the state staff penalty well so so you know we have a we have right now a moratorium on the death penalty that, that that's a deceptive term because what it means is that we're not going to execute anybody but it doesn't mean we're not gonna it doesn't mean we're not going to 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 put people on death row this is this is a little bit like the federal system where for years we had no executions. I mean, there, there was no appetite for executions. And then Trump comes along and, you know, in seven months, he executes 13 people. So, so putting people on death row when there is still an active death penalty is a dangerous situation because, you know, governors are, are, are not there forever. And if, if, you know, as long as you have a, as long as you have a death row, you have a chance for execution. Now, Krasner's office supported the moratorium um, and 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 uh, and then that moratorium you know is still in place governor wolf served two terms and uh, and now we have governor a brand new governor Josh Shapiro and well, you know we're cautiously optimistic that he'll keep the 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 moratorium in place mainly because none of the problems have been rectified in 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 the death penalty in Pennsylvania um, and am I remembering this incorrectly, but did the legislature try to, or the attorney general try to prevent, uh, Krasner from trying death penalty cases or? Well, so it, it, it's, they never actually did that. The, the legislature impeached Krasner, right. that's a whole different story. But, um, I, I think what you might be thinking about is a situation in Florida where uh, the, a prosecutor, I think it was Orlando or maybe, might have been Jacksonville oh, yes. or Orlando. Iola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, the governor came in and said, we're not going to have that. Krasner has not, they have not taken cases away from uh, uh, Mr. Krasner. And I think the reason is that Krasner has a committee that's making these decisions. Now he's, 
made no bones about the fact that he doesn't think the death penalty is a good idea. But he has a committee that is screening cases uh, um, and, and making recommendations. And I think that might have been the mistake in Florida that, that, that uh, Larry Krasner has not made in Pennsylvania. No one is trying to take, no, nobody has tried to take cases away from him at this point. Okay. You know, there's just too much happening and sometimes the brain just doesn't keep it all straight. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were watching, uh, you know, Missouri and, and the Taylor execution, sadly. Um, I don't know if you followed that one at all. Well, I, you know, I followed it from a distance because frankly, I've been following a couple of other executions. Uh, uh, one last week in, in Texas, Wes Ruiz, and, and another one that may or may not happen in, in a few hours in Texas as well, uh, John Ballantyne. And uh, I think that's how he pronounces his name. The Ballantyne case is is particularly interesting. Uh, I think if you if you don't mind me talking about it for just a second, the 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 lawyers in that case are 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 from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Capital Habeas Unit, which is the best best group of death penalty post conviction lawyers in the country. Um, and 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 I'm I'm very very proud to have them you know, in Philadelphia, but they're handling this case in Texas. And what they discovered is kind of a staggering amount of, of racism that, that took place in the case. Not only, not only the foreman of the jury using the N-word, but which is kind of like harkens back to the, the essays we talked about the other, the other day, but um, they found notes where one of the lawyers wrote, there's two lawyers, one of the lawyers wrote, can you can you spell lynching on his notes? And then the other one put like, like a, I guess it's like an umlaut, a little one of those little tri triangles. That, and he said, can, and he added the word justifiable. Can you spell justifiable lynching? Imagine that you're being represented by two lawyers and at least one of them, if not both, think that this is a, what, what's going on in the courtroom is a justifiable lynching of their client. It's appalling, frankly, to have that level of representation. And that's that's the person who may be getting executed in a couple of hours in Texas, because the Texas courts so far have just seen no no, no reason to to consider that issue. Right now, I think I think as we're speaking, it's in the United States Supreme Court. And it's you know, it's so hard to have optimism when you send something to that court these days. Uh, so that's I, I didn't I didn't follow the Taylor case quite as much as as these two. I know Mr. Taylor had a had a what was uh, um, a, a, you know a strong innocence claim I think, but it, it again got nowhere. Yeah, it just seems like there is really no uh, fail safe here, and and that gets back to what we talked about last week. Yeah, you know I mean. I don't want to be too cliched here. You know, when you say elections matter, they sure, they, you know, you can't help but look at the United States Supreme Court as the best evidence of that. And, and you know, I, I mean, I think the, the, the bloom is off the rose. I think there was a time when people may have thought that, that um, the, the Supreme Court gets its answers out of law books, right? 
They're very, a, a group of nine very, very smart people. They're doing the research. They're, they're, they're really uh, uh, looking closely at, at past precedent and they're finding the answer that makes sense. But I don't know anybody that believes that anymore. It's basically just a, a, political, a, a political group up there making, you know, making the decision that they want to make and then writing the opinion to support it. And right now we've got, you know, we've got we've got six justices who have made up their mind about the death penalty. And it's the rare case that, you know, can penetrate their predisposed opinion at this point. So back to, you know, the Atlantic Center and and, and your little. work, um, you know, I understand you guys have been tracking death penalty cases and you have uh, data. What have you found out uh, based on this? So, so, you know, boy, I'm really trashing Pennsylvania today, but it's shocking that tracking capital cases falls to a, a, a small nonprofit in Philadelphia. How can that not be a, a, a state-run organization, right? Um, but it's not. So we do our best. We're the only organization, I think, in this. I know we're the only organization in the state that actually tracks this data. And you ask, you know, what, what does it show? Right now, it shows 57 cases. And, and um, because of, of the lack of, of a state-centered organization, there is no, there's nothing stopping prosecutors from uh, seeking the death penalty. So as, as a glaring example, in Washington County, Pennsylvania, a county with 0.1% of the population of the state, there are now 12 active death cases, 12 out of 0.1% of the population. It's because there's a, a, a prosecutor out there, uh, uh, name is Jason, Jason Welsh or Jason Walsh, um, who I, I assume doesn't understand the, 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 the consequences of, of what he's doing and um, just willy-nilly seeking the death penalty against, against anybody he can. Um, that's not a way to run a system. So, you know, that's what our tracking shows. Um, we can see where uh, um, kind of, you know, the, the, the balloon starts to get bigger and bigger before it pops. And right now it's, right now it's Washington County, which is just below Pittsburgh. Um, and, you know, other than Philadelphia, there are cases, there are cases everywhere. And we're, like I said, the, the Atlantic Center just is trying to keep its thumb in the dam. Uh, we're pretty, we're in pretty desperate straits, I would say right now. Um, and talk about your work on uh, the resentencing of minors in Miller v. Alabama. Yeah, that was really, so, you know, once again, Pennsylvania led the country in the most, we led the country in the most juvenile lifers, five, over, over 500 in Pennsylvania alone. And Philadelphia led that group with, with about 300 of those. So, so we were really the, 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 the epicenter of, of uh, that juvenile life revolution that, that took place. Um, Miller versus Alabama came down, I guess it was 2012. Pennsylvania did not accept that ruling. There was a, there was a lot of litigation about whether it was going to be um, retroactive. And so it wasn't until Montgomery versus Louisiana, which I guess was four or five years later, 
that the issue got settled. And then all of these juvenile lifers in Pennsylvania came back for resentencing. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the law for the death penalty and the law for juvenile resentencing, the juvenile resentencing law came from the death penalty law, basically. Miller versus Alabama, if you read that opinion, you would see a lot of, a lot of discussion of the, the tenets of capital representation, which is individualized sentencing uh, uh, for the most part. So, so uh, when you have mandatory sentences, you don't have individualized sentencing. And, and so that's what prompted all of these resentencings. And what we learned from that, uh, which is, I think, a, a lesson that I, I really wish would be wider known, is just how many of these juveniles who were put, to, put in prison for life as lost causes, you know, after 20 years, after 25 years, some of them significantly longer, had no business being in prison. They had utterly reformed themselves. Um, their behavior was, was, was they'd grown out of the bad behavior. Um, they had not had any uh, uh, write-ups. They, they were ready to return to the community. And what we learned when they did return to the community was that their recidivism rate is very, very low. And a number, I'm, I'm, I'm close to a number of them at this point uh, uh, who we've represented and who we've helped represent. And uh, it, it was really an eye-opening experience. Not, not so much for me because I knew this already, but I think for the public to see just how reformed and ready for release these people were, if it wasn't for that juvenile revolution, they would still be in prison. And we would just, we would be continually incarcerating people that absolutely did not need to be there any longer. Um, and then finally, you know, what else are you guys working on? Current projects, upcoming projects? Yeah, so so I, I, let me just, you know, kind of do a sort of a rundown. What, what the Atlantic Center does, we, we really, um, we try to consult on as many open cases as we can. Um, kind of, I, I sort of consider myself a minister without portfolio. Uh, you know, I have no, I, you know, we, we just... We're there just to try to help. We have no we have no government authority or anything like that. Um, we have a, a mitigation specialist uh, on staff. We have a second lawyer that we have just hired on staff. So we're 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 now expanding. So we try to consult with uh, as many capital teams as we can. Then we do trainings uh, uh, at least once a year, and now once a month, our our mitigation specialist Kaylin Christian is running. Uh, um, these these uh, monthly uh, uh, CLE trainings, and uh, and 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 after we after we've done, I have individual cases of course that I represent people on, and 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 so does Kaylin and our our our, our second attorney now Francis Harvey. Um, along with that, like I said, with the level of injustice that has happened in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania, but a lot in Philadelphia over these years. There is a desperate, a desperate want for any kind of help. So we get a lot of calls to please look at, please look at my case. And uh, like like you said earlier, we we try to work closely with the Conviction Integrity Unit. Um, uh, so so the work is you know it's expanding. It, it, we don't handle low level felonies or anything like that, but um, we are trying to get to 
to, to help with, with life cases that, that are extraordinary and that, you know, real injustice has, has taken place. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying our best to, to keep our hand in everything, really. And again, I hope the listeners will go to AtlanticCenter.org to, to, to get a broad sense of, of really everything that we're doing. You stole my last question. No. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is your biggest need? Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie about it. You, we were laughing about this early on. As a small nonprofit, you know, I mean, resources are everything. Um, you know, all, all the money, go, you know, we don't have a hot tub in the in the office, right? I mean, the money goes directly to services. And, 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 and there's such a need in Pennsylvania for this. I mean, it, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking to say, first of all, we, you know, we don't have a, we don't have what in federal, in federal court, they have like the, you know, first step back, they have second look acts and different, we don't have anything like that. We've got, we've got thousands of lifers. We've got an active death row, um, support, financial support is, is, is the, 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 the be all and end all of any small nonprofit. And I'm, I'm not going to make any bones about it. If anybody's out there and wants to support us, take a look at our website first. See if it's up your alley. I think it will be. And uh, that's what we're looking for. All right. Well, thanks, Mark, for coming back on and uh, sharing. Uh, really, um, you know, it's remarkable listening to the stories out of Pennsylvania because you would think things would be better there. David, I, I'm really appreciative of the opportunity that you have given me here. And uh, I just want to thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.